Hello there, this is Dr. Ed Hill, the host of This Week in the Word, where we grow in our knowledge of the Word of God and our walk with Christ. This is the episode for Sunday, August 27, 2023. Hope for Hard Times, Episode 8. We're just passing through. A few months ago, my car was included in a bunch of cars that suffered a car break-in. You know what I realized after that? I didn't need to store anything of value in the car. I no longer locked the car, and I even have a sign on it that says, Unlocked, nothing of value stored in the car. And I can't tell you the freedom there was in just, you know, walking away from that and not worrying about it because I can't stop it. You know, people break out car windows all the time. But it's just interesting that we have to realize we're just passing through this world. We don't actually own anything. We need to think like aliens, exiles, foreigners, sojourners, travelers, migrants. We need to think like pilgrims passing through. And I'm going to do something I hardly ever do, but I'm going to read a long quote, and it is well worth listening to. This is the defense of his book, the apology for his book, that means to defend his book, Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. The pilgrimage of life is a deeply interesting subject, coextensive with human nature. Every individual of our race is upon pilgrimage, from the cradle to the grave. It is the progress of the soul through time to enter upon a boundless eternity, beset on all sides at every avenue and at every moment with spiritual foes of the deepest subtlety, journeying from the commencement to the close of the course through an enemy's country, uncertain of the term of existence, certain only that it must terminate and usher us into an eternal state either of exquisite happiness or awful misery. How natural that every man's life should be called by its proper name, a pilgrimage. Recollection. Time is a preparation for eternity. All mankind are pilgrims. All are pressing through this world. The Christian willingly considers that his life is a journey because he is seeking a better country. But the greater multitude are anxious to prevent the recollection that time is a preparation for eternity. And in consequence of this neglect, they shudder when approaching the brink of the grave into which they are irresistibly plunged. Although perpetual examples warn them that suddenly, At a moment when they least expect the fatal catastrophe, it may befall them. Still, as if infatuated, they make no inquiry of the holy oracles as to how they can escape the second death, but take the miserable counsel of some worldly wise man and seek a refuge in lies which death will terribly sweep away, or they wholly neglect any preparation for so important and certain, if not sudden, an event. All are on the advance. Time hurries on those whose pilgrimage is limited to the foul but fascinating streets of the city of destruction, 
to their eternal doom, while those whose anxious cries lead them to the Christian calling press on in the narrow and difficult path that leads to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what John Bunyan wrote about why he authored Pilgrim's Progress. I read that once. It is difficult reading, but once you get the hang of it, man, is it instructive. And I believe every Christian ought to read that book at least once. Now, we're going today to 1 Peter chapter 2. I thought I would deal with verses 11 through 17, but when I got deeply into the study for today's episode, I realized that I would be doing very well just to adequately cover verses 11 and 12. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. Now let's break this out. When we're going through this world, part of the suffering is sin and temptation and having to resist that. And Satan is constantly, along with his demonic hordes, constantly trying to drag us into sin. So right here, Peter is, he, first of all, he addresses them as dearly beloved. Now, if you remember Peter, he was a rough and ready fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. The Lord had brought Peter a long way you know, 30 plus years later as a disciple and an apostle. And he knows that not too long from now, he's going to lay down his life as a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Lord told him that he would. And such a great work has been done in the life of Peter that he addresses his readers here as beloved. This is not just this is not a letter to random people he hardly knows or cares about. He loves these dear brothers and sisters in the Lord. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. So what is this word beseech, the King James word? Well, it's from the Greek word parakaleo. Para means beside and kaleo means to call. So literally it means to call to one side and it refers to the act of calling someone to the, your side in order to give aid or help. So urging or exhorting implies an earnest, persuasive address aimed at encouraging the readers, listen, to face their trials and inner temptations. Now this, what I'm about to say is extremely important. Always at the root of this word parakaleo, the Greek word, is the idea of enabling a person. Let me say that again. Is the idea of enabling a person to meet a difficult situation with confidence and gallantry. So Peter has every confidence that these Christians will hear what he says and they will pay attention to it. And you know, they're, gonna, they're not doing this on their own, by the way, because they're indwelt by the Lord Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, right? So the Lord lives in us to do through us what his will is for us. But we have got to have the attitude, people, where it says, dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. 
we had got to have the attitude that this is a, a verse of a song, an old song. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Don't drive your stakes too deep because we're moving in the morning. You get that? Do you understand that? So he calls them here strangers. This is um, uh, three Greek words, I guess you could say, is from para, this word para epidemioi, is para, that means nearby, and it implies a kind of a temporary sense describing one who passes near, but they're on their way to something beyond. And the Greek word epidemos, a stranger, and epidemos has two words. I hope I'm not killing you here with this Greek, but this is very key to understanding this. Epidemos is two Greek words, epi, which means in or among, and demos, a people. Like that's where we get our word demographics, demography from. So it literally, so what does it mean, Pastor Ed? All right, here we go. <laughs> Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers. So what does that mean? It literally means a stranger alongside uh, you know, another person, so a stranger or sojourner. This person is not simply one who's passing through, but a foreigner who has settled down, however briefly, next to or among the native people. Let's face it, even though we're Christians, we weren't always Christians, right? We were part of this world initially, then we met the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, we're going to be here a little while. I don't know how long but we live among a lost world. But notice that we, we live briefly next to or among these native people. Now, this is a great picture of believers in Jesus living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So paraepidemios describes one who makes a, a brief stay in a strange or foreign place. And man, is this world ever being exposed as a strange and foreign place? I mean, people don't even know anymore if they're a boy or a girl. That's really ridiculous. So this is one who sojourns, they stay as a temporary resident or who resides temporarily among these native people. Now listen, the periepidemos did not expect to be regarded as a native of the place he lived. You probably won't be real welcome. Now, as long as you can earn people money or you provide some other benefit that they like, you know, they'll tolerate you. But, but if you can't do any of that, all of a sudden you are of no value and no use, especially because you're a Christian. Let me ask you a question, beloved. Are you becoming too comfortable and too familiar with this world in which we live? And it's a, it's a world that is not evolving, it's devolving. And it's being corrupted. Almost every day we can see the evidence of the corruption all around us. This is what I want you to remember, like Peter says here, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers. You don't really belong here, neither do I. You are an alien who lives here temporarily. Now, he says here, I beseech you as strangers 
and pilgrims. And uh, pilgrim, you know, we know what that means. is one who's just passing through. So what does he say? Uh, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So what does that word abstain mean? Well, it means it's the idea of of putting some distance between you and sin. It means to to be away or to be at a distance. What What Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying here is he's telling us that we have to hold ourselves away from contact or influence of the strong desires that originate, that come from our utterly depraved, fallen human nature that we got from Adam. And you know what? Even if we're born again, it's still latent within us, even though we are now Christians. One day, it'll be completely dealt with in eternity, but right now we have to deal with it. Now, the present tense is used here for this word abstain. You know what that means? It means it it calls for us to where we are to continually hold ourselves back from these things that would destroy us. And it's the idea, think of it this way, it's like a ship that is offshore and it's dropped anchor so it can ride out the storm and not be destroyed on the reefs and rocks near the shore until it's safe, obviously, to sail in and go around those. That's how we are to be. Now, what what did he say here again? Let's read it again. Dearly beloved, that would be Christians, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, the Greek word fleshly, sarkikos, that's what it means, the flesh. It refers to the, the literally the flesh, but in a spiritual context, it's the depraved nature that we all inherited from fallen Adam. Every baby is born lost and fallen. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's the truth. And they begin to show that as they get older. Now, it's the idea of having the nature of the flesh, that which is sensual, that uh, the, the five senses, you know, that's what we're talking about here. And it's controlled by, listen carefully, controlled by animal appetites that we inherited from Adam instead of being controlled by the Spirit of God. One commentator says that sarkikos refers to the impulses belonging to the selfish and lower side of human nature. And you don't need a clinic to understand what that means. But we're to, we're to hold ourselves back from continually fleshly lust. That's the Greek word epithumia. And it is the idea of we're not to have our passion toward these things that are evil. Thumos means uh, passion. The root or the impulses, the longings or the passionate craving, listen carefully, whether it is good or evil is determined by the context this word is used in. But it's, it's that strong craving directed towards something, okay? Now, uh, 
Most often when we're reading in the New Testament, the New Testament describes strong desires that are they're perverted and they're unrestrained and they originate from our sin, our flesh nature, which is corrupt and fallen. The great preacher and writer F.B. Meyer from years ago said this, lust is appetite run wild. Now, often when we, when we see this fleshly lust, we obviously think of sexual sin, and it is that, but it's, it's anything that begins to control and dominate us. I know people who are that way about sports. A lot of people are that way about money, about relationships, about their cars, about a nice home, about this, about that, uh, political parties. I mean, the, the list is endless. And we are to hold ourselves back from fleshly lust. Why? Here's why. And we, and we saw it there, but let's look at it. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust. Here's why. Which war against the soul. Oh man, what does that mean? Well, it's the idea of waging war. It's soldiering. What is someone doing when they're soldiering? They are waging war. It's, it's a, like a military expedition that, that puts the soldiers into battle against an enemy. So our word strategos, that, that's the root word, the Greek word rather, of this word stratiomahi. And it means, it comes from the Greek root word stratos, which equals an encamped army. Uh, think about what that means. It's used figuratively in this verse, and it's also used in James chapter 4, verse 1. Listen, a spiritual battle. Let me make this blatantly clear. When you are being enticed and have strong cravings for anything, I don't care what it is that you, you know is not right, you are being warred against. It's not just your own desires within you, but the enemy tries to leverage that to take you down. We, and you have no choice about this. You can't run from it. It's part of living in this world. I think, as, you know, for the Christian, it is an element of suffering for the Lord because we are constantly assaulted, obviously, by Satan, but maybe not always directly by him, but he's got a massive network of fallen angels called demons. Demons study you and I. In some regard, maybe they know us better than we know ourselves, and they know what would be a trap or how to harm us. So say, well, I don't see these beings, or well, of course you don't see them. But it doesn't mean it's not real. I've got an electric light bulb and a lamp right here. I can't see the electricity, but I'm pretty sure that if I unscrewed that light bulb and put my thumb down in there, I would find out it's real. It is real. 
So don't get freaked out about that because we have the Lord as our helper. No weapon formed against us can prosper and and all of that. So you may need to uh, study more deeply spiritual warfare and you can do that. But just know, even if you never study any of it, you are being warred against. And one of the ways is through these fleshly lusts because they they launch a military campaign from within us because the, the lust is inside of us for whatever is trying to be used against us. So it's to carry on a campaign of spiritual warfare. And in both the New Testament, uh, it, it's used of planned and orchestrated from the indwelling flesh, that fallen nature we inherited from Adam, that evil disposition that all people are born with and which is still latent, as we said, even in believers. Now, note this. This idea of waging war is present tense in Greek. Say, Pastor Ed, why are you doing all this English grammar stuff? Well, it's Greek grammar, but I know how you feel because I hated, I enjoyed literature and all of that, but I didn't really dig English, all right? I get it, but listen, this is important. This word, the wage war, is in the present tense. Do you know what that means? No, I don't. Tell me. All right, I'm going to tell you. This indicates that the spiritual campaign spearheaded by these fleshly lusts against our souls is a continual struggle. And we can expect to engage in it until the day we see our commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no, no pass from this war. Now, can, can we have victory? Absolutely. But you will never come to a point in your life where you are untemptable, unwageable, war againstable. That listen, that's part of going through this world. On my part, I want to get through this as fast as I can. I don't want to, uh, metaphorically speaking, build a home and castle here and plan on staying. I want out of here when God says it's time. And you know what? If you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're not giving in to all of this, that will be your attitude too. Now, if you're saying, well, I'm kind of torn. Hey, that ought to be a massive red flag, like a hurricane flag on a beach right now. If you honestly say, well, I don't know, I feel strongly both ways. There's issues here with you and the Lord. You might not even be a Christian. Or if you are, you completely surrendered in this war and you need to get with it. All right? Notice here that these are, th- these are things we're told to do. It's not that we're going to wait on the Lord to get us out or whatever. We are told to do this as a Christian with his power. Now, William Barclay was a great commentator, and I'm going to read what he said here. So this is another long quote warning. (laughs) This is good, though. The basic commandment in this passage is that the Christian should abstain from 
fleshly desires, it is of the greatest importance that we should see what Peter means by this. The phrase sins of the flesh and fleshly desires have become much narrowed in meaning and modern usage. For us, they usually mean sexual sin. But in the New Testament, they are much wider than that. Paul's list of the sins of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19-21 includes, now listen, it includes immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. Now, there are far more than bodily sins listed there. In the New Testament, the flesh stands for far more than the physical nature of man. It stands for human nature apart from God. It means unredeemed human nature. It means life lived without the standards, the help, the grace, and the influence of Christ. Fleshly desires and sins of the flesh therefore include not only the grosser sins, but all that is characteristic of fallen human nature. So this idea that they wage war against the soul is it, it it's a downward movement, the idea of against, and it's used here in a hostile sense, so it's the idea of being against you. Now, what is it against? Your soul. Soul is suki or psyche from suko in Greek, means to uh, breathe or blow, and it's the breath, it's that then that which breathes. So this is hard to explain, but it's sort of like, even though I can't explain it, we all know what it is. Your soul is the real you inside. You are created uniquely. You are a very important person to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a soul. Once you were created, you will never cease to exist. Now that's good news and bad news. <laughs> For the Christian it's good news we will never cease to exist even though our physical body passes away one day or if we're alive when the Lord raptures the church and we don't even go through death, either way, we will never die eternally, spiritually. Isn't that great? But it's also true for people who hate the Lord Jesus Christ or don't love him, people who are unbelievers. They may even be religious, but they have no room for Jesus Christ. You're going to live forever also, somewhere, but it won't be in heaven, and you don't even have to have doubt about it. Without Jesus, let's put it like this. When, when you're born, you are already as good as in hell for eternal, eternity, eternally. Jesus came to rescue you from that state. So you would never have to go there eternally. But you have to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to make him your Savior and Lord. You have to trust that what he did on the cross 
paid the price for your sins and that He rose again the third day victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave, He's ascended to heaven and He's coming back. And maybe today you will place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then you can begin to grow in your understanding of Him and His Word. But these fleshly desires, they, they wage a military campaign, they soldier against, they war against our soul. This is, it's like we used to say when I was a little boy and we used to shoot marbles. This is for all the marbles. You don't get a second chance. What about purgatory? There's no mention of anything like purgatory in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It does not exist, period. Prove me wrong. Read the whole Bible. All right, now, oh, almost done, and I appreciate how hard you're listening, and you're just, you're growing so much in your understanding. Now, so let me read verse 1, excuse me, verse 11 and verse 12 together. Uh All right, here we go. Verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conversation, that means our, it's not talking about what we say, it's talking about our way of life, our lifestyle. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. These are the non-Jewish people, and that word is often used in the New Testament to talk about unbelievers people who are not Christians. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles that whereas they speak against you, this is the idea of to slander, to talk someone down in the multitudinous ways that we do that. We should not do it. But non-Christians will talk us down as evildoers. This is literally, that's what the Greek word is in English, evildoers. So that idea is this, it's a, a kakopoias. Kakos is evil, and poio means to do or make something, like a poem, okay? That's where that word comes from. But it describes one who is pernicious, injurious, evil, or behaving in a bad way. Kakopoias is a strong word and expresses the idea of a very wicked person who should be punished. From the standpoint of the pagans back in the time that Peter wrote, the way they looked at it is believers were evildoers because, you know, they they abused them verbally and showed their contempt for them, calling them evildoers. And and they did this as often as they could, you know, is, is what they did. But they were slandered, spoken down, talked down as being irreligious because the Christian would not worship the heathen gods And they were also thought to be morons or ascetics, like monks, because of refraining from popular vices and is disloyal to the Roman government because of claiming allegiance to another king, someone called King Jesus. That's what Charles Erdman wrote about this in his commentary. Now, I'm going to show you something here that's really interesting that they may by your good works, and that, that Greek word is kalos, they were so white. All right, this is important. This is, this is so neat. Let me find where I have my note on that. Uh, kalos 
Excellent is, would be our word. It conveys the basic meaning of good with an emphasis on that which is beautiful, handsome, excellent, surpassing, precious, commendable, or admirable, inherently excellent or intrinsically good, providing some special or superior benefit. Now, here's the neat thing about this, this word. It is the idea that it is observable good. That they may by your good works, they see how you live, how you talk, what you do, what you don't do. That they may by your good works, watch this, which they shall behold. This is, this is so neat. It's our word observe, and it means like being an eyewitness. It means to observe something. Now watch this, it's so cool. It implies both continuity, that is, the unbelievers at work or on your sports team, in your neighborhood, in your family, they watch you very closely over a period of time and intently, that is, they view everything you think, do, and say very carefully. Did you know you're being watched? Not only by demons, but by lost people. Oh man, I'm freaking some of you out. Listen, the present tense use of that they may by your good works which they shall behold, it, it's the idea that these non-believers in Jesus are continually closely inspecting your life and your good deeds, Some, like a supervisor at work looking for bad fruit or good fruit. Wow, I never thought about that. Hey, don't be like the guy who became a Christian on Sunday at church, and he said, I'm nervous about going back to work, and I work with a bunch of hard-drinking, foul-mouthed people, and uh, I'm just worried about how this is going to go. So they prayed for him, and he went to work. Well, the next Sunday, they asked him how his week at work went. This is what he said. He said, it was great. I fit right in. They never even suspected I was a Christian. <laughs> Don't be like that. <laughs> Don't be that way. Be, be where people can observe, you know, your good works. Now, watch what's going to happen if you live that way, the right way. Having a conversation honest among the Gentiles, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. I mean, ultimately, either when the Lord comes to them to save them, or if they resist the Lord their whole life and die when they face the Lord as judge, they will have to glorify God. Now, what does that mean? Well, the, the word that's used here, doxadzo, in, in this way it's used means to give a proper opinion of God. So it's saying that our supernaturally enabled that means the Holy Spirit does this and empowers us. Our, our spiritual life, our excellent behavior can have an eternal impact. You know, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, said this one day. He said, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than any other person I know. And that's true. And we've got to have the Lord's help. And if we make that sincere effort and use his help, the way we live, we'll never be perfect. Don't get that idea. 
but but we will live in such a way that people just say, man, I, I can't figure out what makes you tick. There are even non-Christians who will go out of their way to try to provoke you. And when you are able to endure that and have the right attitude and still put up with them and love them anyway, that gets their attention. So listen, I'm going to give you an illustration as we get ready to close. See, that earned me 10 more minutes right there. <laughs> That's been researched, by the way. Someone found out that when a preacher says, so in conclusion, people shift around and they're good for a little more time. Let me give you an example, a real example of what I just said. Saeed is the name of a very sensitive, hardworking man who lives in Zariad, and that's one of Cairo's garbage dumps. And he works long hours collecting trash. He is one of the thousands of Egypt's garbage collectors, and he struggles to survive. But the people in that class, they seldom break out of their hopeless prison of poverty. Often, Saeed clears little more than 50 cents a day. One day, Saeed in the garbage dump found a gold watch valued at nearly $2,000. He could have sold the watch and made a better life for himself and his family. And you know, who would blame him, right? He could have reasoned that he needed it more than the owner or that it was God's justice that allowed him to find the watch in the garbage. But you know what? He didn't do any of that. He returned the watch to its owner. Now, I don't know how he knew. Probably he knew the household it, that trash had come out of. But he returned the watch to its owner. Saeed is a Christian, and he believes it's wrong to keep what doesn't belong to him. I have to think that whoever he took that $2,000 watch back to had to be just astounded. You know, hopefully they gave him some money. I mean, that would be the right thing to do, right? And I don't know how that turned out. But you know what? Even if he wasn't rewarded in this life, he will be richly rewarded in the next. I want to give you a silly example, but I think it will resonate with you. As we think about, we're just passing through. You know, stop building uh, spiritually, metaphorically speaking, mansions and compounds and all of this kind of stuff like you're going to be here forever because you're not. I want you to think of Gilligan's Island. Think of Thurston Howell III, you know, the rich guy. Think of his wife, Lovey. I've always wondered why in the world did she take all of that luggage and wardrobe and all of that on a three-hour tour? We do not need to be like Lovey Howell. We do not need to bring all that stuff. We're only on a three-hour tour. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Our life is not here. It's ahead of us in another place. Listen, do what Peter said with the Lord's help and things will go so much better even though it's not easy. 
Now, I'm going to give you a phone number. Some of you need to talk with someone about how to become a Christian. 888-388-2683. 888-388-2683. Call that number and someone will answer your questions about how to become a Christian and how to grow stronger in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you're not calling me, but you're calling a Christian ministry with counselors who can help you. And as I've said so many times, I say again, if the Lord doesn't come first, or I don't die in my sleep, or Satan, the deep state, or the World Economic Forum don't double tap me, then I'll be back with episode nine of Hope for Hard Times next week. Hey, do me a favor and be a missionary. Right where you are, like the episode, share the podcast with someone right now, and follow the podcast. Thanks so much. Probably I'll see you next week, but you never know, I might be in heaven. Amen. Bye-bye.